0: Welcome or welcome back to this week's
1: edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Robert Carver and me, Niels Karstow-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. For those of you who are regular listeners, our conversations are intended to keep you focused and inspired to continue your rules-based investing journey. And if you're new to the show, we hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to check out the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed, like the two solo episodes I did over the holidays where I went into a lot of details in terms of how you think or can think about designing your trend-following program and what that would have meant in terms of performance in the last 25 years. As you may know, the aim of the podcast is to democratize the hedge fund, CTA or quant investment world, whatever you prefer to call it. And if you want to be a part of this journey, what we ask of you is that if you can comment, if you can share these episodes, if you can rate and review them in iTunes, we greatly appreciate it. And this way we can see that you get some value from our time and dedication each week to create these episodes. And as long as that continues, we will, of course, continue to make them. And by the way, it's not so much whether or not you have a big following and therefore whether or not that your share matters or not. It doesn't really matter at all. In fact, even if you have a small following, because of your share, um, And whether it's on your feed or whether it's on a page, it tells Facebook, Twitter, Google, iTunes or YouTube that this is something that might interest other people based on the number of people sharing it. So this is how you can let us know that the topics we're discussing, the content we're delivering was worth your time. So with all that said, Rob, great to be back with you this week. Hope you're doing well. How are things where you are in the UK?
2: Uh, yeah, happy New Year, Neil. Good to be back. We've just entered our third lockdown. Wow, wow, yeah. So, and unlike the second lockdown, we have homeschooling. So the children are not at school, but they are learning from home. So our broadband capacity during the week is being pushed to its absolute limit by uh, you know trying to get hold of time to get that gigabit uh, speed yeah. into your house, Rob. I'm not looking forward to when, well, in a few weeks' time, I'm going to start doing my own uh, teaching, uh, university lecturing. Um so I'm I'm gonna be saying like come on guys, I, I need some of this this uh, this capacity, please.
1: Yeah. Talk about a scarce resource, right? Yeah. It's not just Bitcoin nowadays. The weather for <laughs> it's bandwidth. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Now, just as a quick market wrap, it's gonna be pretty short. I mean, of course there were some major political events during this week. The Georgia Senator election that surprisingly resulted, I guess you could say, in a Senate control now by the Democratic Party. And a shocking riot, really, in Washington during the certification of the presidential election. Just a few of things that I think most people have noticed. Equity markets, funnily enough, seem to anticipate and focus on the increased monetary stimulus package by the Biden administration, rather than the uncertainty. However, you know, the same election results seem to have caused some concern to bondholders, at least, where we saw a healthy sell-off, I think, in U.S. fixed income markets this week. But... I want to really go back to you, Rob. Tell us how the year 2020 ended up for you.
2: Yeah, so 2020 actually was, if actually if you've been listening to me on the podcast as I've been doing my guest appearances over the last 12 months, the theme's been generally speaking, I did pretty well in January and February and I've kind of gone sideways since then, up a bit, down a bit. So the end of the year actually was a pretty good performance, I'd say, of up 16.6%. So I'd say that's kind of an average year for me there's been a couple of years when I've been basically flat or down slightly. And there's been some years when I've done a lot better than that. In terms of markets, best performing market was palladium, interestingly, but also some bond markets up there, um, euro dollar, BTPs. And then worst performing market for me actually was the the European VIX, the V-Stocks. So yeah, quite quite a kind of, hard to see any patterns in, in the figures for the year, really, to be honest. Um, I mean, if I look at asset classes, the V-Stocks, Brought down my performance in in vol to to be actually the vol sector, which is VIX and V stocks for me was my only losing se- um, asset class. All the other sectors I, I actually made money, and metals and agriculturals were the best. So really hard to see see much of a pattern there. To be honest, it's been a definitely been a mixed year. If you look at the, the you know the indices, and if you look at the performance on a on a month by month basis, I just thought I'd quickly look at December since it's been yeah. About a month since I last spoke to you guys. So in December, I was up 4.2%. And I think actually for a lot of CTAs, December was a good month. So I was kind of in the same sort of category as people there. And then, yeah, for the year so far, actually, as you say, US fixed income sold off and my worst markets in the year to date, I can see our euro dollar and US 10 years. But I have eked out a small profit in the year to date so far of just up about 1.2%. So Good start to the year, but obviously we, we can't really say much from a,
1: just a few days of performance. Unfortunately, we can't annualize one week's performance, I'm afraid. Uh-huh. But, if It uh, would have been if nice. Only. If only, if only. Okay. I know we're going to talk more about 2020 in a second, but just on my side, I think for 2021, I'm going to change a little bit about how I talk about performance. I mean, I'll continue to briefly put it into perspective as to how we experience the ongoing performance at Done. But I think the more detailed information will be based on my own trend-following model portfolio that I went into great details about in the holiday special episodes. So if you missed those two or need a refresher, I suggest you go back and listen to those. So at done uh, to finish the year, we had our best month actually in December. Still finished the year pretty flat, uh, frankly. Um, but it was the best month in December, and for our volatility strategy, that was a quiet month, a little bit down December, but we had a very, very strong year in our volatility strategy. This week, beginning of 2021, it's been pretty quiet on both strategies. They're both up a little bit, but really not much to talk about. For my own trend-following model portfolio, as I mentioned, I think I was recording on the thirty-first of December, so we didn't have the final numbers. I think the final number for last year came in at at thirty-four percent thereabouts. And of course, I don't charge fees to the model portfolio, so it's there's no performance fee uh, in those. That's a pity. It's a good performance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the, so, the, the, so this is kind of the 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 raw number per per se. But this week actually, it's also had a pretty good week. Sorry, start to the year. It's up about three and a half percent. So for the month, and I talked about the three groups of models that I operate, so I'm not going to go into all of that. People can quickly find that out from the episodes. But in terms of the performance, all three groups of models did deliver a a positive start to the year. Although group two models, which are, as a quick refresher, it's the models that try to mimic the behavior of discretionary traders. Um, And they actually had the best start to the year. That's also where I have a long bias um, and not surprising a lot of markets are going up at the moment. In terms of sector attributions, equities did best, followed by base metals. And the laggers this week were precious metals and currencies. And if we drill down to single markets, the DAX performed the best, followed by copper. And the two worst markets, not surprising, were gold and silver with their sell-off this week. And in terms of trading activity this week, I did actually have one of the models that tried to go long in gold very early in the week, but that got stopped out yesterday. And then the system also tried to go short some 10-year US notes, actually. And this, of course, is happening in the Group 3, so the fast-reacting models. And then also during the week, the model or the program as a whole added a little bit of long sugar early in the week. So... That's really what happened otherwise, not a lot of trading activity in the strategy. Now, before we move on to some of the questions that came in from Michael, Bruno, Kyle and Craig, I wanted to ask you about kind of a tweet that you shared with me showing kind of the top and bottom 20 hedge fund managers, which had quite a lot of dispersion in returns this year. So perhaps we can use that as a springboard to talk a little bit about 2020 as a whole. What have stood out to you, Rob?
2: Yeah, so it's the list of the the top roughly 25 and bottom 25. So you, you're obviously going to see huge dispersion because you're looking at the extreme ends of the spectrum, right? But what's interesting is there are a lot of funds in there, of course, you don't recognize. They're probably smaller funds, lower AUM, don't have probably high, quite high vol targets, so you'd expect to see them in the extremes of the distribution. But there's also some, some big names in there. So on the on the long side, for example, uh, Marshall Weiss uh, had a fund that did very well. Roy Niederhofer had a fund that did very well. And there's a, form of a fund run by a guy called Crispin Odie, who's quite a kind of well-known UK hedge fund manager. And that also was 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 right up there. But on the at the worst end of the spectrum, and so these are funds that have lost 14% or more in the last 12 months. Although I should say that this tweet is a bit misleading, because if you look closely, it does have the dates when the performance is up to. And some of them are the end of November. So there's a bit of extra performance in there. One of them actually is till the end of August. So I don't know whether the fund then closed down. So, you know, we can't necessarily compare apples with oranges here, but still, it's interesting to look at the figures so down sixteen percent um, with Systematica, which is a uh, you know a Swiss well-known Swiss um, trend following fund that was spun out of um, Bluecrest, of course. It used to be known as Blue Trend. You've got our uh, friends at Winton Yeah, can I just
1: interrupt you there? It's not their trend following fund that not that their trend following fund actually did well last year. Ah,
2: uh, it's a macro-RV yeah. fund. Yes. Yeah, yes. it's the relative value fund. Value fund so just to yeah, be clear, okay, on that, good, yeah. good to correct correct that. So Winton's Diversified Futures Fund, which I'm pretty sure is a falling fund, was down 17.5%. And we'll talk about that probably in some detail. And um, there was another Winton fund that was down 23%. And interestingly, another fund run by Kristen Odie was down 29%. So he had actually huge dispersion just, just looking at his own book, which was quite interesting. And then we had Renaissance's Diversified Alpha Fund down 33%. So this, of course, we talked about this before, this is the fund that's open to outside investors, not the medallion fund that's closed. The medallion fund, of course, performance is not publicly published, but it, it's generally speaking done better than their public funds. And we've talked about the kind of potential conflict of interest here at some length beforehand. So so some big names there and and um you know you you can do two things with these. So what the financial press likes to do is of course they have to write stories. And there was an article in Bloomberg saying, you know, oh discretionary traders beat, beat quant traders this year you know um it's um, a disaster for for the for the you know for the likes of of Renaissance and and uh, you know things like that and it's all because of the pandemic and these quant funds don't know how to to deal with 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 pandemics and of course that's very misleading because you're, you're just cherry picking a, a few examples there now I'm not going to deny that the the kind of market activity here has been difficult for certain kinds of Quant funds but of course it's probably been quite difficult for certain kinds of uh, human traders as well so for example you know if you're a discretionary equities manager with a value bias for the first 9 10 months of the year you were just getting absolutely hammered as all of these momentum stocks you know these these growth tech stocks just completely outperformed and bashed your you know your value stocks completely down and it was only really when the vaccine news came out that we saw a reversal of that and and you know since then value has kind of caught up So it's not just a discretionary quant story. And actually, if you look at the indices, they they show a much more nuanced picture in terms of performance. Um, So for example, the uh, SocGen CTA index was up quite strongly in December, which is something I alluded to earlier, and finished the month, uh, sorry, finished the year as a whole up as well. And um, although there have been some trend-following funds like Winton, which... I think potentially is a bit of an outlier we'll talk about in a second, but there's also been trend-falling funds that, that did well last year. And I mean, your trend-falling models made money last year. My trend-falling models made money last year. Systematica, as you've already mentioned, did well last year in, in that particular segment. So I lo- it's very nice to hang this this simple story of quant versus humans because it's a nice, easy thing to write about. But there's, there's a lot of dispersion, even within the same manager as we saw, but but also amongst the different styles there.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I did briefly look at the Bloomberg article that you shared with me and of course they are trying to make this point that some of the discretionary stock picking strategies did better than the quant strategies, which certainly has not been the case in the last few years. And I imagine personally that the big advantage that some of these non-systematic managers did have in 2020 was the ability to anticipate the outcome of certain things like the central bank interventions, like the pandemic, frankly, to begin with, and then certainly in the in the recovery phase, really load up on stocks and in particular on the technology stocks and essentially go against the trends that we were seeing back in late March of last year. and And that's always been an interesting thing, I think, discretionary versus quant, this thing about anticipation, because if you're really good at it, Of course, you're going to pick turning points much better than we are. But, you know, if you're not so consistent at picking them, then you're going to end up in trouble. The other thing that I think obviously stood out in terms of the quote-unquote perceived disappointment by firms, as you mentioned, Renaissance Technologies and maybe Bridgewater, we can throw into that. Although I will say that with Bridgewater, their all-weather portfolio did actually pretty well last year. And I know that many people will judge a firm that struggles during a period of time and to be quick to conclude that their approach has stopped working we we know that from trend following it comes up all the time but I really think that you have to be careful with this I don't think you can have an you know an investment approach that works all the time and in our world we know that every single design choice that we make will have, you know, an impact on performance, which means that sometimes our strategies will do better than the average and sometimes it's going to do a little bit worse. And as long as I know, or you could say as long as the manager knows why that outperformance or underperformance is occurring and you're still happy with those choices, you should stick with your strategy. And you mentioned it yourself. I mean, I think one of the examples of this uh, really is Winton and where David Harding made a very deliberate decision to shift his risk allocation away from trend following. And even if this has meant that they have underperformed in 2020, it doesn't really mean that their models have stopped working, in my opinion. And who knows? I mean, it still may be a good decision for them in the long run. The challenge, though, that we all face when we make a big decision like that is that it can come with huge costs in terms of changes in our AUM when a firm starts to make these decisions. But I'm sure you have some views on this as well, Rob.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, when I was working at AHL, there was a constant pressure in that we wanted to diversify the models, the sources of return, because we wanted better absolute performance. Because from our perspective, in terms of, you know, we were incentivized by performance fees, of course. Our incentive was to produce the best absolute performance every year and if you have a, a strategy that relies on a, a very narrow set of sort of return factors return streams alternative beta whatever you want to call it then you're inevitably going to do worse in the long run than something that's more diversified so that you know a portfolio that's got a bit of carrying a bit of momentum and a bit of mean reversion will almost certainly over the long run outperform a portfolio that's purely focused on momentum but the problem, of course, is that our clients didn't want that. You know, they they were like, We we are buying you for the momentum part of our portfolio. And if we, we want we have another manager that we'll use for the the convergence trades, if you like, the carry type trades, the R V types trades. You mean we want you to stick to the knitting. We think A, we think this is what you're good at. And B, we're relying on you to fulfill this role in our portfolio. So that makes it very difficult, and even if the manager themselves would like to diversify into doing different things, it ma- makes it quite difficult if there's a pushback from their clients. So one thing you could try, of course, is to try and you know raise new money effectively and say, right, well we're still going to carry on doing this, but we're also going to launch this new fund, perhaps that's more focused on on a you know a different kind of strategy or, or a different set of strategies, have diff- different mandate, and hopefully attract either you know money from your existing clients who say, well. We like these guys we trust them they're good at they seem to be good at quant generally okay they've only had a track record of momentum but we we trust them well enough to give them more money to put into this this new fund that that's still still quant focused, still systematic but has got a a wider remit or maybe you'll attract new money from from people who have never invested with you before but are looking for that that particular kind of fund where it's difficult is where you, you you kind of try and shift your entire sort of main fund from one one place to another and you you can only do that very gradually and um you, there are there's a couple of risks with that one risk as you say is that people won't like it um they will for the reasons i said they'll be like no no no, we want you to stick to this and and uh, even if you're not explicit about it which is potentially very dangerous you know a good client will say we've noticed your correlation with your peers has been going down what what are you doing differently and they will be concerned there and the second issue is if your timing is bad and you diversify at the moment when these other things that you're adding to your portfolio underperform. So, and that appears to be what happened last year with with Winton. It looks like they underperform momentum very strongly because they had a lot of other stuff in their portfolio that did particularly badly. Your sophisticated clients won't like the fact that you're changing your mandate, but all your clients will hate the fact that you've lost money or lost certainly massively underperform the benchmark. And uh, you know. Winton sadly are seeing that in a in loss to their their AUM at the moment.
1: I actually think that's a good point. And I, and I wonder, I really wonder if it, you could say that it's not necessarily that they made a bad decision, but their timing was bad. Or unlucky. Yeah, yeah. unlucky. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think that's a really valid point. The other thing that springs to mind when you say what you say is that we hear that a lot, that, you know, the people say, well, <laughs> let me put it this way. When trend followers are doing well, we hear a lot of people saying, yeah, we're buying pure trend because we love pure trend and that's what we want you to do and that's the role you fulfill in the portfolio. The problem with that is that often when trend following goes through one of their bad spells, which it does and which we've been through the last, say, five years or so, it doesn't hold and they will redeem. They won't want that pure trend anymore. That's the challenge the manager has that... We almost know that if we stick to our knitting, it's going to be bad for business. We almost know that. And so it's a big challenge. And very few of us, I would say, have done it and just stuck with it, um, trying to mitigate the weakness of trend following, because there are weaknesses, but just becoming better at it. And all I can say is, on, on you know, at, at our shop, I mean, it's been a 47-year journey so far, and we're still trying to improve so it's really not that simple uh, to do and and you and i know rob there's a few other managers out there that are well known for their pure trend stuff and they're highly volatile and have had a difficult year a few years now and, and and had a pretty good year actually um this year because of december right very lumpy mm. all the returns came in december and all of that so this is tricky now if I can just expand on one thing about that, and that is, when I look at our returns in 2020, I can't help noticed that the two best months of 2020 was or were March and December. And these two months could not have been any more different really in march you had a massive crisis in the market and in december it was all full of optimism and celebrating the vaccine being rolling out and to me and i want people to challenge me i think if uh, you know if they disagree to me that goes to show the robustness of trend following the fact that it can handle two so different environments even within a 9 month period now of course i'm not blind to the fact that the transition period between those two environments were more challenging. But I do still think that it just tells you all you need to know as to why trend following continues to work.
2: Yeah, I, I think it's interesting because a lot of people use correlation as a measure of whether something is undiversified or diversified to the rest of their portfolio. And obviously, correlation is a very simple linear measure. And you can have two assets that basically have a zero correlation with you know your long-only sort of 60-40 portfolio. But actually, when you drill down to individual months, you see a very different pattern. So if you look at something like, you know, a leveraged long-short equity portfolio, overall, perhaps, yes, it has a low or zero correlation with the market, but it tends to do very badly in months when risk assets generally sell off. There's a very clear pattern there, you know, know, like, for example, March um, 2020, September, October 2008, there's a very clear non-linear pattern there, you know, crisis, sell-off, crisis, sell-off. But the trend following is much it's much more, it does, again, probably has roughly a zero correlation with your, your classic 60-40 portfolio, but there's there's less of that clear pattern. There's some, I mean, there's perhaps a, a slight tendency for it to do well in crises to be this kind of tail hedge insurance type asset, but it's not, it's not really a clear enough pattern for you to Legitimately sell it and say, "Yeah, this is a tail hedge to your main portfolio." It's something that's undiversified, not just in a linear way in the sense it's got zero correlation, but also actually in the fact that, in you know, when when your your long only portfolios are doing badly, sometimes it will do well, sometimes it will do badly. Maybe on average it does a little bit better. There's a bit of a tail hedge property there, but not not, not very noticeable. Um, but it's not this this very clear kind of yes, this this so called uncorrelated asset actually is secretly you know, underneath the hood, really a risk asset because it does very badly in crisis months.
1: Yeah, I mean, we, we've we talked about this whole concept of crisis alpha many times, of course, over the years. And um, it's a very, how should I say, it's a term that can be um, held on to by some. We're saying, yeah, this is kind of, it makes sense to me. The problem is that it's the definition of a crisis that really determines whether it works or not. And what we know from history, there are a couple of things that I actually think is really interesting about crises in general. Um, And I think 2020 showed that as well. First of all, you can just talk about time frame and speed, right? So we know that the short-term managers did relatively better, certainly in February. I don't know about March, but certainly in February, they did better. And by the way, I should say that I am trying to get a very large short-term manager to come and challenge our views because we're all a little bit biased towards trend following here or longer term trend following so let's see if that all works out for for our lineup in 2020 but that being said and we by the way we talked um uh, jerry and moritz and i talked about this just before uh, the year ended that it was interesting to see that trend followers measured by the trend trend index had been lagging the performance of short-term managers all year But at the end of the year, actually, it was the trend followers who ended up doing the best. So this is something that people just need to understand that they serve a different role and during a crisis period as a whole, they will do better or worse depending on where we are in the crisis. And by the way, I think the probability is higher that trend followers usually... When we talk about crisis, we really mean equity crisis. But I think the probability of trend followers to do well in, in the initial part of a, of a equity crisis is probably quite low, simply because we tend to be on the wrong side of the equity part of the portfolio. And if I look at our attributions in the last few years in terms of sectors, equities, I think, actually is pretty much the worst sector because we've had too many of these really sharp sell-offs at a point where you're coming from an all-time high and so you're fully loaded up on equity. So that's normal. And this is why we diversify, because what other managers that we know well in this industry, when I look at some of their studies, and I see it on our side as well, the most consistent sector during crisis is actually things like commodities. They tend to do well. And this year as well, commodities actually did well. Uh, for trend followers, and they certainly did well during the crisis because we had energies where we could make use of of the short side of that trade and so on and so forth. So that's one point I would say. So you're right. I mean, people really shouldn't buy CTA's or trend followers for tail hedge protection. Then I would say it's probably much better to look into some kind of volatility strategy, which is also why we on our side now have that as a standalone product simply because it can react much faster. It can be more specifically exploiting expansion of volatility in terms of short-term expansion of volatility than a trend-following program can. But again, you end up with the same challenge as an investor that you talked about, Rob, and that is, okay, so if I choose the short volatility guys, I'm going to make money most of the time, but I'm going to Partly blow up, you know, once in a while. But if I choose the long volatility, which is going to help me during a crisis, I'm going to bleed a lot in between the crisis, and I'm most likely going to sell that investment just before I need it, almost like a trend following strategy. So I think the challenge to investors, and I actually think that Richard Brennan down on the um, down in Australia and his crew does a really good job of showing how if you combine And they, I think, use like 10 of the best CTAs. They put them in a portfolio, of course, with the benefit of hindsight because it's based on historical returns. But if you just show how even a combination of trend followers, how they can blend well together and create very attractive, not just overall returns, but risk-adjusted returns, I think it's very hard to ignore the value of what uh, we can add to a portfolio.
2: Just one thing before we finish 2020, I think I should say, as a, I actually got a friend who works at Systematica. So, to, to correct for my mistake earlier, I will point out I've just checked and the Systematica Global Trend A fund was, was up about two, two and a half percent last year. So,
1: yeah. Yeah. And I think Blue Trend did even better, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, trend follows in general. It wasn't a bad year, I would say, between the bigger managers. It was either flat to plus 10% between most manage, most yeah. bigger managers with more or less the same level of volatility, right? Then you have some people with high volatility, they did a bit better, and so on and so forth. There were a few trend followers that lost more than 5%, but not many really. And, and again, that doesn't really tell you much about is it working, is it not working. It just tells you because, and I haven't got the final data for 2020 yet, but when I was looking at it the last time, Time frame or look back period as we call it was incredibly important last year because there were many time frames that didn't work, but there were a few that worked really well. So if you were inside those time frames, congratulations, you got it right. The other thing that were quite important last year was really markets, because there were a few of the quote unquote smaller markets that had exceptional trends. I know Moritz always talked about iron ore, for example, and stuff like that, which we don't trade. We didn't benefit from that. But there were a few markets that did really well. Of course, Bitcoin, those managers who trade Bitcoin in their trend-following portfolio would have done maybe not exceptionally well because there were also a sell-off during March, but but probably would have done okay. So it was just another year and another year that causes difference in performance depending on the choices you've made. So I want to move on to the next point that you also shared with me. And I, I did actually read your blog post because I thought it was very interesting. And that's about, you know, risk and maximum drawdown, how that all fits together. I thought it was a very interesting post, and I want you to talk about it. Uh, I may comment on it later on, but I, there was one thing that that I just wanted to um, challenge you on a little <laughs> bit. Good. Because I saw a sentence, and maybe you didn't mean it the way I read it, but I saw a sentence where you said... A 10% vault gives you an expected drawdown of 23%, where a 20% vault pushes you to 46%. That's fine. I agree with that. And then you write, clearly, the higher your sharp ratio, the less likely the chance of a large drawdown. And I was thinking, hmm, can we actually make that conclusion? Because if you think about people like long-term capital, they would have had a massive sharp ratio. If you think about short vol strategies, in general, they have very high sharp ratios, but it doesn't mean they can't have big drawdowns.
2: That's true. Um, So here I kind of dig out of my briefcase the standard caveat for any kind of research, which is that it depends on the kind of model of returns that you're using. Right. So actually, I did all of that analysis using a standard um, kind of assuming that returns were Gaussian normal. So that they had no skew or, or ketosis compared to a Gaussian normal distribution. Okay. So clearly, if your distribution is sort of well behaved and normal, then the more the higher expectation of making money, the higher sharp ratio is, the less likely it is that you will have a a sustained period when you're losing money that will lead to a large drawdown. Now, of course, that assumption does not hold true for your LTCMs or your um, you know, your your kind of classic short vol managers. For them, you know, their their return sequence is very much making small gains, small gains, small gains, and then having sharp losses. And those sharp losses will produce the worst drawdown loss, the worst drawdown for um, a manager with a, a Gaussian return, or indeed for a trend follower with a positive skew, is more likely to be caused by a series of small losses compounding, basically just a sequence of bad luck, effectively. And in that case. You know, it's true that the higher your shark sh- your ratio is, the, the the less likely you'll see a bad drawdown. And it just is an emphasis of the fact that shark ratio is not a good measure of performance when returns are not symmetric, you know, when returns are not Gaussian, because it does assume that you can divide return by standard deviation, and standard deviation is a symmetric measure of risk. And of course, that's inappropriate. Now, I, interestingly, I did actually um, have at my disposal a Function that would produce for me returns that were skewed, so I could actually simulate something a bit like an LCCM and see what effect that had on the drawdown statistics. Now, the hard part for that is knowing what number to put in for the skew. How big should that negative skew um, be to be realistic to represent what a short, you know, a short vol manager can actually produce? Um, now, for skew that wasn't too big, you know, in either direction. That actually did not have too much effect on what the worst drawdown looked like. It did actually change the pattern of the drawdowns overall, but I was looking purely just at the worst, the worst drawdown. So actually, for unless your skew is quite negative, your average drawdown will actually be smaller if you're if you've got a negative skewed strategy, which sounds a bit weird. But basically, what what with, if you've got a negative skewed strategy, your, your pattern of returns means you're going to get a sharp loss. That'll be your worst drawdown. But then you'll recover from it quickly and make lots of small gains and be out again. Whereas if you've got positive skew, you're more likely to bleed money for a long time and have a sustained worst drawdown, which you then get out of, of course, eventually. So that that may be slightly counterintuitive. Now, the important point is that you can't really go from this sort of theoretical abstract world of random, essentially random bootstrap returns using some underlying distribution to the real world of LTCM and say so you can necessarily draw exact conclusions from that because you have um, issues like the fact that really no kind of using a si- relatively simple model you can never really get close to how horrific the, L- the sort of final distribution of an LTCM strategy was you know the outliers that you see there you just can't get them you know they just they just don't appear and that's because in the real world you you know you with with the sort of relative value strategy like LTCM was running with massive, massive leverage. You know, you have issues of liquidity, you have, you know, margin calls. You have the fact that the whole market knows you've got this trade on and, and is going to push, be pushing the marks away from you the whole time. And that all produces, you know, um things that shouldn't happen, which is that, you know, you get these massive negative returns that just are complete, you know, the, the distribution of returns for LTCM is like is actually two distributions, right? You've got the distribution for the first Few years they were trading which is all the way over here with a very high mean a very high shot ratio actually looks quite gaussian quite normal and then you've got the last few weeks which is all the way over here on the left hand side of the distribution and it's it's very you know very very hard to you know using the kind of technique i'm using which is random returns off the fixed distribution it's very hard to produce that kind of pattern there's a general lesson here, which is don't just look at sharp ratio if if and also look at your skew and decide if that's appropriate. You know, if if you're um if you're positive skewed, then sharp ratio actually, if anything, is gonna be a little bit conservative because you're actually doing a little bit better than the sharp ratio suggests. Because the standard deviations measuring also the big gains you make as a positive skewed manager when things are going well. Whereas if you're a negative skewed manager, then using sharp ratio is far too optimistic. And and you know, you shouldn't say, Oh, well Rob says my sharp ratio is two, therefore my maximum drawdown is five percent, therefore everything's good. You know, that that's clearly almost certainly inappropriate.
1: Yeah. What I liked about your article, um, and generally of course I like what you write. I like the fact that you touched on this thing about, you know, um, Kind of average risk, which you could say, sharp ratio gives you an idea of average risk. But but then the more sort of um, extreme risk, um, which is maximum drawdown to to some extent. And um, what I think is interesting, and and you you came at this article in a different way that I think about it. But I think a lot about what is the real risk to investors when I think about the journey they go through with us as a manager. And, and what it really is, it is the depth of the drawdowns we have, but also how long they are. More so, I think, than the month-by-month volatility, up 3%, down 3%. I don't know that they really worry about that too much. But once you get into this drawdown, so if you think about it, and, and you know, my levels of quant compared to yours is is much lower so i, I may butcher this a little bit so uh, please um, please both, uh, please, we both bow down, please bow be down gentle Moritz, of course so <laughs> right be gentle so but what i think the whole point is is that most risk metrics that are being used and let's just you know say that sharp ratio is perhaps the most widely used risk met- metrics it doesn't tell you about the path of the return meaning you can have three different strategies for example with the same sharp ratio but they have they look completely different um one of them could be relatively you know stable a little bit volatile and the other one you know uh, maybe a little bit with a little bit more drawdown and then if you order your returns in the most extreme case where you take all the losses first you're going to see an underwater curve that that makes you um Puke to say the, to say it as it is, um, because it's going to look like you're simply having all these massive losses and then it all recovers at the very end. But in a sharp ratio world, it will look the same. So, so I came across a little while ago and I know I actually asked, I reminded myself, I actually asked you about it because I was struggling with my Excel uh, skills and I think you actually helped me out um, a little bit on that as well. So, but I came across something in a, in a book I read called the Ulcer Index, right? Mm. And when I saw that, I thought, hmm, sounds interesting because if there's something drawdowns can give you really is an ulcer, that's what we really worry about. So I looked into that a little bit. And and the Ulcer Index in itself is somewhat interesting because it does look at your drawdowns, the the depth of them. It also looks at how long they uh last so that's kind of your first and i'm not going to go into all the details because people can read up this uh in, in 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 the literature and all of that stuff but that was my first observation i thought that that makes sense in my world at least that's what i think my clients are worried about then um you can change the formula a little bit and make it into something called the also performance index which actually is kind of a ratio of of, you know, I think it's a ratio of kind of gain versus pain mm-hmm. in, in another way. I know uh, Jack Swager coined the gain-to-pain ratio, but this is different. But it's kind of the same, you know, how good is your strategy compared to how bad it's going to feel to be in it. Um, so I think the, the the also Performance Index is also interesting. But then I think this is this is where it becomes really interesting because... If there's one thing that we know of, and I alluded to it a little bit in terms of, you know, um, long-term capital, we have Bernie Madoff, we have other strategies. I'm not going to mention the names <laughs> because where you think, you look at them as, oh, yeah, that's a safe manager, and then suddenly they have like a really outsized performance year to the downside. But then they start, you know, you you can then take it further and you can start looking at, uh, you know, kind of the conditional Drawdown of the strategy a little bit like VAR, but only looking at the downside, and what that tells you is okay. So here you have, say, with a ninety-five percent confidence level, this is what you should expect. So let's just say a CTA has, uh, um, you know, a conditional uh, value drawdown is at uh, or drawdown, a conditional drawdown of say forty percent, but then they may still go beyond that, of course, because this is just 95%. So they might still go to, say, 50% drawdown. And so when you start looking at that, you could kind of calculate more what um, you could say is a more extreme level of drawdown. And um, where I caught up on this, it was called a kind of a pitfall indicator. And I think that's another thing that is interesting, and that is what should you fear, frankly, um, outsized what would be expected, and you can then put that ratio into, or you could put that number um, into, um, say, in in um, in the context of your of the volatility of the strategy. So clearly, if you have a really bad, you know, drawdown, but normally you're only like a two percent volatility of two percent annualized volatility, that's clearly worse. Than say a CTA that loses 50% but has a 30% annualized volatility. So it gives you an idea of the danger somehow. And then you can put all of that into um, further context um, by calculating something that is called the serenity ratio. These
2: are all great names, aren't they?
1: It's a, it's a great name, actually. Yeah. It is a great name. And so first you need the, the kind of the penalized risk, which is the average risk, the also index times this pitfall indicator, the extreme risk. And once you have that, you simply take the return of the strategy and you divide that by the penalized risk. Once you have that, that's kind of your serenity. And serenity to me, I wish it was m- more widely known because at least in, in, in my, the way I look at it, if you calculate the serenity ratio on different types of strategies what you find is, and this is something that's been articulated in different ways uh, historically, uh, at least I've tried to, that is, you actually get a much better feel for the true risk in the strategy. And when you do that, it's interesting to see that something like global macro and even systematic trend following has quite high serenity ratios because what it really means is that there are very few surprises the risk you see and this is why this is why this is why we look more risky because we realize our risk and our volatility every single day unlike other strategies where it suddenly shows up and you're out and and so i really like would i would like people to think differently about risk metrics and how they value a strategy and I would love for them to go away from the sharp and to go into things like Ulcer, Serenity, Pitfall. Um, I think it makes a lot more sense, frankly. I-, I butchered probably some of this and people can read up on it, but... But it's it's and it's not necessarily super easy to calculate. I um, I had a a, a guy uh, um, that I work with to help me um, do it on a daily basis um, to get it accurately because that's what you really need. Monthly is not really accurate enough. Um, but it's um, I think it's super interesting, and I think we could learn a lot from looking at not just different trend followers, but also different strategies in total by broadening out the standard risk metrics mm. that we use.
2: Yeah, so just quickly and perhaps just, just a sort of abstract summary, I think for me there are three things you need in a good risk measure. The first thing is it should relate to your own experience of what you think risk is and how it relates to you. So you're right, a lot of investors look at drawdowns, and whereas a lot of the conventional risk measures don't care about drawdowns. And my aim in writing the blog piece was was to try and take two kinds of risk measure and sort of give an idea of how they relate to each other. So if to say, look, if, if you do have this kind of sharp ratio, this is sort of the drawdown you can expect. And I think that's a useful exercise for people to try and map between different kinds of risk measures. The second thing is a risk measure should reward consistency. So it's very easy to to construct account curves that have very high sharps, but where, yes, all the returns made in a single month. So it doesn't. that's not really giving you any sort of statistical information about, about it, which is why I always try and use yeah, conditional things that look at the distribution look at tails of distribution things that are conditional probabilistic things that look at error bars around sharp ratios and things like that um and that will give you an indication of whether a strategy has just been lucky or whether the, the genuinely has been repeatable performance uh and the third thing you should look for and i've just added this to my list after what you said is a good name i think uh if if anyone a sp- aspiring quant out there wants to come up with a good good risk measure then give it a catchy name and people will remember it clearly
1: yeah no that's true feel like questions now, I know you had more things you wanted to uh, talk about, but no, maybe some do, of the questions will questions. Let's do, we'll questions. Let's let's do, do questions. questions. Yeah. And so, funnily enough, the first question, which actually came in, uh, and I apologize for the wait, Michael, uh, it came in in uh, late December, um, but it's quite funny because Michael, who wrote the question, actually also commented on your on this particular blog post, and I think you agreed that he had made a couple of yeah. good points to it. He's a smart guy. Uh, to it. Yeah. yeah, smart guy. So Michael writes, so he talks about a question that he sent us last year, and he says, a follow-up question. Currently, I trade about 30 US futures instruments, equity indices, treasuries, energies, metals, acts, currencies. At At what point does it make sense for a retail trader who trades once a day to go global? How much diversification does it provide? having another foreign government bond or an equity index gives a little uh, diversification, but not much. So the question is how many truly diversifying instruments are there overseas, but not in the US? I know of a few, which is rubber, iron ore, but not that many. I'm a retail trader, so I only want liquid futures, no OTC stuff.
2: Back to the diversification question, which is, of course, one of my favourites. But it's a bit of a twist because I think most people tend to think about diversification I- initially ac- across asset classes, and that's that's the best form of diversification. So if you're trading, say, uh, an equity and a bond future, the best thing you can do is add an agricultural to that, add an, an FX market to that, and so on and so forth. Now, Michael's very lucky by, by trading US markets and that just even by limiting himself just to US futures exchange, he's obviously got you know, there's, there's hundreds probably of liquid markets he could be trading without going outside of, you know, Chicago and, and, and New York. Um, so he's very lucky there. Um, and he's probably got access to, a, you know, a wide variety of of, of um, asset classes and also within asset classes, you know, to within the, you know, the commodities he's got, you know, the softs, the the, the liquids and so on and so forth. So his portfolio already is, is very good, I would say. The The thing he's missing is, as he says, the geographical diversification. So, I would say this is gonna be of less value than having the diversification across asset classes. But I would estimate based on, you know, roughly what the correlation matrices look like, you might get an extra ten to fifteen percent of performance, by which I mean you would go from, say, an expected return of fifteen percent to an expected return of sixteen and a half, seventeen percent, you know, with say a twenty five percent vol target by adding things like, you know, the German bond futures. Perhaps Australia and Korean bond futures, um, and then you know you've got um, obviously all the equity indices. We've already mentioned the European V stocks, which is you know a volatility market. You can add, assuming you're already trading the US fixed market, so they will they will add a bit of extra performance. For me personally, if, if you can treat diversification as free, then you know it's not costing you anything. Then, then that extra ten to fifteen percent will is is worth having, right? Uh, now, that's not always the case because, for example, you might have to pay data fees, you know, to access these other markets, potentially. The data fees in Europe are pretty reasonable. But I think in, um, certainly for my broker, I think the Canadian and the Australian data fees were quite high just to access, you know, a two or three extra markets didn't really make it worth it. And the other issue, of course, is that, um, you know, as a, as a smaller investor, I've talked about this a lot, you don't necessarily have the capital to diversify your your markets you know, that much. So it may be that you really, as a retail investor, you've got a choice between trading, you've got a choice about of about 30 markets you can trade. Now, whether those 30 markets are all in the US or whether they're spread across the world, as long as they're diversified across asset classes, it's probably slightly better to be across the world. As I said, it's maybe 10 to 15%, but it's not going to be a huge advantage. But if you were to say, in be in a different situation and say, right, I'm going to confine myself only to markets traded in London, then that's a much narrower set of markets and you would get a much bigger bang for your buck by then diversifying to the European the um, US and potentially some Asian exchanges as well. The other thing, of course, you've got to consider when you go across countries is, is currency. So, you know, you'll be expected to deposit margin um, in, in euros, potentially in pounds, in Australian dollars, in Korean won uh, and so on and so forth. And that's going to add a little bit of extra administration and, and friction to your kind of daily work making sure you've got margin of the right amount in these different currencies and also that will introduce a little bit of currency risk into your portfolio as well which you could try and hedge but to be honest for a small investor it's probably not worth doing the, the costs of hedging will it exceed any benefits so so yeah it's it's worth doing but it if it's not completely free there's a little bit of extra work probably there's a bit of extra complication and as I said, because he's already in the US with its wide variety of futures markets, he's not going to get a huge benefit from it. But, you know, I, I I would probably advise that it's worth at least considering.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would add to that is that if you just think about it, there's a couple of things that spring to mind where I think there could be some benefits and diversification. One is in London, you have a lot of base metals that um, yeah. you don't really get in the US. So I think those markets could be interesting from a diversification point of view. And I think even within, so we've been used to economies in the last 20 years becoming much more synchronized and therefore you could say, yeah, but, you know, interest rates and stocks, they tend to be highly correlated. But I just have a sneaky feeling that as this unusual period continues and maybe now with the UK outside of Europe, you've certainly seen Japan, I mean, the Nikkei has had a very different path than many other equity indices. I actually think that maybe the diversification benefit of having some European exposure and some like, you know, Australia could be one, but also I think Japan actually, those markets are interesting. I'm not necessarily too keen on things like China and stuff like that. And and of course, even though, you know, we have a a good friend who talks a lot about Chinese commodities... It, that's just not really an option for, for most people, not even for, for firms. So, But but I do think there could be something worth there. And, and actually, these markets obviously can be traded on the same platform with the same brokers. So it's not like you need to do a lot of work. Maybe with the... Uh, I mean, LME markets are a little bit different because as far as I know, it's not really a true futures contract, but yeah, it great. is becoming more standardized anyway. So... And I know one of our listeners who work at the LME really wants more CTAs to, to trade there. So maybe they are making it easier for us to, to look at it as a pure future. So great question, Michael, and thanks for your contribution. That uh, always is interesting. Next question is from Bruno. Bruno he says, I was looking at my IB year-end performance, and it shows that I lost 0.27% on my cash. As a futures trader, do you have any advice as to where to put the extra cash that is not being used on any positions? I called Interactive Brokers and they said they didn't offer any specific solutions for futures traders in that regard. Any advice would be greatly appreciated. Maybe a solution for those that don't use a prime broker could be discussed on the podcast.
2: This is actually very interesting because in terms of timing, I was thinking about this myself only a few days ago. Okay. So um, my, my main trading account has, has always been a mixture of kind of long positions which have hedged plus futures positions. And I decided to kind of simplify my life and, and um, it, for, there were timing issues with doing this because of tax implications. But I've now kind of gone to a very simple portfolio. I've just got a big account full of cash. And then i trade futures positions and that will use some of that cash for margin but as bruno says there will be a lot left over and depending on your vol target you probably most futures traders probably only use somewhere between 15 and 30 35 percent maybe 50 percent of the push um of their um, available capital um as margin so there's a lot left over and there's a couple of implications of that one is um that that potential well you're not going to be earning any interest on in it are you nowadays and you may even be paying you know paying for the privilege of having the broker hold your cash and the other issue is a counterparty exposure issue so depending on exactly what where you are and what kind of you know trade you're classified as for for me personally um the first 85000 pounds of that cash is I, I believe is insured by the government, effectively, mm. but, but everything else um, is uninsured. And and you know, it, it, if something happens to my broker, which you know, touch wood, it won't. That would potentially be money at risk. So, you know, it, it's kind of like, well, what, what do you what do you do with this extra money? You know, the the, diff, the insured difference between the insured cash and the the, the cash you need for margin. This I did have a look. There's a few things you can do. So one thing you can do is is say, well, I'm I'm going to use that cash to to buy an ETF. Which will be essentially some a kind of money market like instrument. So it's going to be something that that's going to probably give me very low returns, but it will be uh, my my counterparty risk has now changed from the broker to the ETF issue, which is probably a bit safer. And um, you know I was looking at a couple of options for this. So one one was based on a um, a total return swap of Sonia, which is the overnight sterling rate. So it's. Very, very similar to a money, a money market instrument that deals with your counterparty risk, but does nothing for the returns. You know, for the because you're having to pay the ETF fee and probably potentially then being exposed also to a ne- what is now a negative overnight interest rate, or at least very close to zero. So you, you end up for me, I was looking at it it was going to cost something like ten to fifteen basis points a year. So one attitude is to say, well, that that's basically I'm paying. That's the cost of insurance policy against my my cash being taken away from me by my broker. So you may think that 15 basis points a year is its like buying a credit default swap on my broker. That Maybe that's a reasonable rate to pay. I don't know. The other thing I looked at that was a bit risky was to invest in another ETF that had very short-term exposure to corporate debt, to, to um, commercial paper, basically that kind of thing. Um, and the good news is that that had a, um, a positive yield um uh, a very low one <laughs> admittedly you know you're talking about tens of basis points a year but it was still a positive yield um in terms of risk obviously there is counterparty risk but it, it was you know the, the the duration is you know a couple of days so it's it's very unlikely that the you know all of these big companies will go bust at once and interestingly if you looked at the price of that etf it's basically a very shallow straight line going upwards and then in March it dips down very dramatically because obviously everyone then is panicking and you know and the things sold off below then their now value. Yeah. But then it returned to this very nice curve upwards. So that's a slightly riskier way of of getting around this issue, and getting picking up a little bit more yield, but opening yourself up to slightly more risk. The other thing to mention for IB customers, and I don't know whether this applies to Bruno, but I think and I think this is a US program only. But I got an email literally a couple of days ago. Saying that they were going to they're going to start a cash sweeping facility, which basically means they would automatically sweep your cash into a, um, a government-insured account on a regular basis. And I, I haven't really looked into that, and I don't know whether that's a U.S. thing only, because it did talk about FDIC insurance, which obviously wouldn't apply to to U.S. customers uh, to non-U.S. customers. But um, that's another option. But the short answer is, Niels, is there are no easy answers. We live in a world where Cash yields nothing, um, and you can either suck that up and live with it, and potentially even have to pay a small amount to 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 insure yourself effectively, um, or you can try and run your account at very very efficient levels of cash, which has its own risks potentially, or you can take a bit of risk and and park it in something that's that's going to give you a bit more yield, but potentially opens you up to you know some counterparty risk. I
1: mean. Being Danish, uh, oh. I follow the Danish markets. Negative
2: interest rates to you are just normal, right?
1: We have probably some of the worst negative interest rates on everything pretty much nowadays. I think you're down to, in many banks, anything above £10,000 equivalent or maybe £15,000 equivalent, you pay now negative interest rates. So so one thing I just want to make clear is that there are sometimes you just can't fight. If you, I mean, where you have to accept that that's the way it is because anything you do to change it will put on a certain amount of risk. And so it's either you keep it safe and you pay or you take a risk and you might, you know, save a little bit. But I do want to remind people and that in 2018, at least, fourth quarter, and where we saw the Powell pivot in December... I think a lot of that was actually not so much the equity markets that were falling, but it was just the freezing of the US corporate debt market, meaning also during the financial crisis in 2008, even some of these quote-unquote safe cash management funds or whatever they call them over there, they got into trouble. And it, that was not a nice situation to be in. Even a, I, think, I think a lot of managers, CTAs, who were using at the time these quote-unquote money market funds to just push push the cash that we sit with into an easy way of, of managing that, it became a problem. And I know on our side, it really was a big wake-up moment and we decided to completely change how we manage the cash portion uh, in our funds to keep them first and foremost safe and not to try and speculate in terms of getting a slightly better return or anything like that. So, but we do use a cash manager to do in order to implement something like that. But it's a problem we all have in, in the world we live in. But I just want to uh, kind of also, I think, what, what Rob was saying don't be too clever. Uh, it's better to pay 27 basis points per year than to lose 10% or 15% of your capital because something goes wrong. Okay, let's move on, um, because I know uh, we all have time limits today. Kyle writes in, My question is about scaling into and out of positions in trend-following systems. Do you employ or believe there is an advantage to base a position size on the strength, the magnitude of the trend signal, or not just its binary value? For example, uh, not just uh, taking a position when a signal is generated by increasing the size as the signal stays positive and or grows in strength up to a predefined risk limit, of course. I would be interested to hear your thoughts and any research that you've done or come across that covers this topic. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna start on this one, Rob, so you can catch up on, on the question. I know you had just had to pop out for a couple of seconds. So so essentially, Kyle, I think that most trend following systems because we don't just look at one time frame, most systems are really not binary, meaning we're either fully long or fully short or neutral. So you could think about it as long as you introduce different, and it could be time frame, so you could have a, to make it very basic, if you have a system that uses breakout based on 50-day highs or 60-day highs or 70-days high, whatever the, the number is, by having several of them, you could say that as stronger, the, the stronger the trend becomes, the, the more it's going to break out of these timeframes, and so you're scaling into your system and vice versa, you're going to be scaling out. So this can be done in so many different ways. But I do think that it makes sense not to put all of your eggs in one basket, meaning only trading one timeframe. But I want to caveat it a little bit because I think if you, and this, of course, we don't really would touch on this in terms of the diversification you get from trading different markets because that's important as well. But if you just look at the the timeframe issue, in some periods, of course, getting in with your full position size in one go can be a big advantage because if the market just goes and doesn't look back, then you could say you get your full exposure straight away. So I'm not saying necessarily that you're going to get better performance by scaling in and scaling out, but what I'm saying is that you're more likely not going to suffer as big drawdowns as you would otherwise do because when you use very few timeframes, only one time frame, so you're really binary in, in your position size, when markets, which they tend to do unfortunately, go through these range trading periods, which can last for years, frankly, in some markets, you're going to lose a lot of money by being stopped in and stopped out several times in a row. So I think as much of it as you could say it has a performance-related aspect of it, it certainly also has a a risk aspect, uh, in my opinion. So I hope you had time to get this, the 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 sense of the question rob
2: yeah absolutely so there's there's two ways that scaling in and out behavior kind of would appear one is through as neil says a time-based diversification of systems so that means if you imagine a trend's just starting then your faster systems will be in there first and then your medium speed systems and then if the trend continues long long enough your slower systems as well and then you'll have a full position so from an, from an outside perspective, if you don't know what's going on inside the black box, it will look like a you know you're, you're gradually adding a position as the the trend increases. But what's actually happening is that you're you know you've got separate independent systems behaving separately, producing this kind of behavior. The other thing that can produce is if if you use something based on a forecast, a strength of trend, to change the size of your position. So let let's abstract it down to just a single system that has just got one time frame. Um, then basically that will do something similar, which is as the trend gets stronger and builds, it will increase its size of its position up to a certain point. Um and I have actually done a, quite a bit of research on this, and there's a couple of blog posts on my blog about this. And that there is quite a clear pattern that basically the stronger a trend is, the more profitable you know, your future expected return will be. And that means you should actually scale in to the position as the trend strength of trend grows. So that that will produce for your individual speed, that will produce a kind of adding behavior. And then if you overlay that with, as Neil says, the additional diversification across timeframes, that will also produce an adding in behavior. So you'll you'll get that kind of behavior. Um, and both of those things definitely work in the sense that they add money the profits. So as a, I think roughly 20, 25% improvement in returns from going from a, a binary system where you just buy when the trend turns in your favor. Versus one where you're building as a forecast changes, and you can also get something like a fifteen percent improvement in returns from diversifying across different time frames. Uh, and as Neil says, it it's it's also very much about giving you more consistent returns in your back test than going forward because you know if you have something like March where the market sells off very sharply and then goes up very quickly, the diff, if you have got a kind of all in or all out system, a difference of just a few days of when you make that decision mm. to switch completely could make a massive difference to your returns and could easily, for example, for 2020 have moved you from a profit to a loss just by basically what is bad luck. Um, whereas if you've got a diversification across timeframes and you've got something where you, you're scaling in and out more gradually of your your position rather than just going in in one go for a given time frame, then that makes it less likely you'll be exposed to you know, this kind of idiosyncratic return risk on just a few days.
1: Yeah, no, I think you're spot on there, uh, Rob. And I think actually, 2020 was one of those years where there was huge difference. I mean, you could have been a trend follower and lost your shirt, yeah, and you could have been a trend follower and made a bundle of money just by having the right or the wrong time frame. So yeah, generally, we I don't recommend just sticking to one time frame for sure let me jump to the final question for today because i know we um we have a time a hard stop today so this question is from craig oh uh, nice to hear from you craig i had a small question for the podcast you may have answered this before so apologize if you have i've noticed that we are increasingly living in a world of an I- aversion to risk or i might even go as far as saying phobia of risk and this has been noticeable socially politically and in investing with the trend towards passive indexing how can trend following take advantage of this environment it's a good question actually
2: it is a good question although i would slightly disagree with the fact that there's been aversion to risk in investing because there's you know we were talked about value and growth you know at the start of the podcast but if you look just at kind of average multiples in in say us equities they're pretty high i mean the you know people are talking about bubbles just generally but also in individual stocks like Tesla which of course has gone up a lot recently and made Elon Musk the the richest man in the world as as we're all aware of so I'm not completely sure I'd buy the idea that 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 people are in a sort of strict valuation sense becoming more averse to to risk certainly in March last year they were because obviously there was a big sell off and and you know the valuation multiples changed um now actually the multiples particularly in the US less so in Europe, and certainly in the UK, look look quite stretched. But I, I guess um, trend followers can benefit if trends happen. So if people become, you know, for a series of years, either more risk-averse, which would produce a sell-off in assets, then obviously, you know, that, that would be a nice clear trend we could pick up on. Um, if, on the other hand, pe- people become, you know, um, you're less risk averse, and prices rise. And obviously, that would be that would be a, a clear trend. That's a kind of sort of trite answer, if you like. Um, I guess guess more generally um, that if if people do become do really genuinely become less less um, averse, you know, more averse to risk, then they what they ought to really be thinking about is diversifying their portfolios to different sources of risk. Because you know, if you're worried about the equity markets but yet you've got all of your money in the equity markets. Well, that that doesn't make any sense, right? You should really be diversifying into something else. Into what though? Bonds? I mean, as we've discussed, bonds and other kind of um, interest rate instruments are, don't look great. Um, you can still make money from carry probably, but you're unlikely to make money from interest rates going down a long way from here. So, or, you know, other strategies, things like trend falling, that's really where people ought to be thinking about putting their money. Whether they will or not, I don't know, because, you know, if people perceive those as risky, you know, as trend following as risky, you, despite our best efforts to educate them, otherwise on this podcast, then, uh, then obviously they'll they'll stay away from it. But but really, that's what people should be thinking.
1: You know, Rob, before um, before Christmas, I think um, I I put forward this thing about that we talk about, uh, you know, a safe um, a, a st- a storage of of wealth or whatever they call it when they talk about Bitcoin and 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 gold. That you know. And I and I put forward said actually I think the safest would be a diversified trend following strategy. That's actually how you should store your uh, you know wealth. And and I know Jerry was jumping for joy and tweeting about it. So I'm all I'm all with you there, and we'll continue to fight the good fight. But going back to the question, I actually disagree a little bit because I actually do know what. Well, I say I know. I think I know what Craig means when he says that there's this risk aversion, because I sense it as well. I sense that people uh, want the safe stuff. They still expect the high returns, but they kind of don't like anything that that can give them big drawdowns, which is also why trend following has not really been a favorite strategy. It's been all this relative this, relative that kind of strategy. So I, I, do, I do sense what, what Craig is saying, But I think the answer is this, Craig, and that is I don't know that trend following can do anything different to take advantage of it because the truth is people change their opinion as to what is safe and what is not. It has been long perceived, for example, that bonds is the safest thing you can buy. I'm not so sure that it's going to stay that way. It seems to me right now we're going through through this phase where actually equities could be what people see as safe because it's not governments directly. I mean, it could be influenced by governments, but you're owning a piece of a business. But if you own a government bond and with all they're doing now with their printing press and MMT and whatever we know is going to happen in, or we don't know, but whatever we think is going to happen now with the new president and with the two houses in the U.S. going in one direction, what that could mean in terms of, of more uh, stimulus, um, I could see that it's going to be the bonds that people are going to feel and experience as the most risky part of their portfolio. So... When you think about the sixty four sixty forty portfolio, and it will be different from country to country. I mean, in Europe often you actually have eighty percent bonds and twenty percent equities being what people think is the best portfolio. I think these portfolios are gonna change and what I really hope is that people will be brave enough and actually replace the bond part with trend following, diversified trend following, because one people shouldn't expect a positive return on their bond allocation when you look at negative rates in Europe or zero rates in most places. How can you even expect a positive return on that if you keep it to uh, you know, maturity? You can't. But with trend following, I think, again, we, we as we talked about earlier, we've shown that we can make money in many different environments. By the way, 2020 was a good year for trend following as it turned out. But this comes on the back of another really good year in 2019. So it it still strikes me as being interesting, to say the least, that people prefer to talk about trend following not working and being dead. I mean, you know, where's the evidence of that? So, So I like your question, Craig. I think people should think differently, though, about what they feel is safe. And so when they think risk aversion, maybe diversified trend following would be a great... Combination with say a stock portfolio, we know for sure on the on the data we run on on our side in 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 when I do my uh, day job, that if you put fifty percent S and P or fifty percent MSCI with a fifty percent allocation to what we do, you don't even get a return that is somewhere in between what we have delivered in trend and what you would have gotten in equities. You get a higher return of both return streams because of the non-correlation. That's the argument. That's what people need to focus on. Of course, you get lower return, uh, sorry, lower drawdowns, you get lower volatility, but your actual returns when you combine things that are uncorrelated actually goes even higher than any of the two components. That's the secret. Okay, let's quickly move on to show or to tell you how the year kicked off for the industry before we wrap up. Beta 50 Index, which finished up about 5% last year, is up 1.46% as of Thursday night. Sock CTA Index finished up 3.14% for 2020, and it's up just shy of 1% so far this year. The Sock Trend Index is up almost 2% so far this year, and it finished up 6.25% last year. The Short-Term Traders Index is flat this week, and uh, it finished up... 3% in 2020, and um, yeah, MSCI uh, had a good start to the year, up to a quarter percent more or less, 2.35. But world government bonds lost 60 basis points this year, which is actually quite a bit in a week for for the bond index. I'm not going to ask you today if you uh, have any good resource to suggest, um, but feel free to answer because I don't have any suggestion myself. It's just not no time for me to listen to many podcasts this week with year end and month very
2: very quickly so i'm going to mention three three things one is directly related oh you did okay cool you do have some okay cool one is related directly to finance one is a bit tangential and the other is completely unrelated but interesting fantastic so um i'm a big fan of of matt levine who works for bloomberg and writes this this Mm -hmm. daily newsletter called money stuff which Mm -hmm. is very very interesting and he's just actually restarted writing that after taking i think he was on paternity leave for a few months so if you don't already subscribe to that i highly recommend it the the sort of vaguely tan related to finance thing um, is a podcast i listened to recently by um the guys at the ringer it's called it's about gamblers it's literally called gamblers and of course gambling and and finance and trading have some overlaps and that's that's a very very interesting listen uh if if you like me, you're interested in in, uh, in in gambling as well as in finance, and the third thing is a podcast um, from the BBC from a guy called Tim Harford who also writes for the FT, um, and uh, his main podcast is something called More or Less, which is about sort of statistics and things in the news. And he over the over the pandemic, for example, he's done a lot of analysis of um, you know the, the coronavirus statistics, and it's been very interesting but he's got a new a new podcast now actually which is um about vaccines um and it's very very good and he's been interviewing people like bill gates for example and um talking to people who are experts in in the vaccines because you know the job of inoculating potentially billions of people over potentially you know the next few months even or the certainly the next year or so is, is something that's, that's never been done before so the you know the the logistics and the science and all that behind that is is very very interesting and very topical so
1: I, i'd recommend recommend that as well three interesting recommendations that i never uh, come across before and of course someone in 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 interviewing bill gates that in itself is controversial because you never know what side he really is on i guess if you listen to the conspiracy theories so uh, yes absolutely i appreciate that And, uh, of course, make sure you keep sending uh, questions to us. I know there are questions we didn't talk about today, but that's because in those questions, they were more uh, minded for for Moritz specifically. There are a couple of questions for him. So we do love to give you our views on your questions. So keep them coming to info at toptradersonplug.com. Rob will be back in four weeks. Moritz will be on next week. Jerry will be on in two weeks. And our new secret co-host by the way uh, is going to be Mark Resensinski who we're on only a few weeks ago and he will be also rotating every four weeks and maybe sometimes we're going to be do some joint ones together we'll do uh, as much as we can and I'm sure we'll also have some fantastic guests on along the way and so on and so forth so hopefully lots of good things to come in 2021 for you if you want to support us please leave a rating and review in iTunes they mean a lot for a show like ours and of course check out Rob's blog and all the stuff and great content that he produces. From Rob and me, thanks so much for uh, being with us today. We look forward to being back with you next week and in the meantime, be well, stay safe
0: and take care. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor podcast series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at and we'll try to get it on the show.